Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Well, happy Sunday morning to everybody. It's uh, early in the day, and I'm enjoying a cup of coffee and catching up on some work here, and we had some stuff kind of blow up here in my home state of Arizona last week that's directly on point to the show, so I figured I'd spend Sunday coffee talking to you all about it and catching you up on what's been happening. And this is also going to be relevant not just to folks here in Arizona, and I'll explain that in detail as we go through, but also for folks around the country who might live in jurisdictions that are looking at modifying some of their uh, drug laws. And in particular, my my friends up in Oregon, I'm specifically looking at you, hint, hint, John Dennis, um, what's happening here in Arizona is kind of a preview of what will happen in Oregon. So what am I hinting about here and, and Maybe I can be less cryptic. Let's dive in. So here's what's going on. Um, If you've been listening to my show at at all over the last several months, you'll know here in my home state of Arizona, we had in the last general election uh, a recreational marijuana law passed, Prop 207 here in Arizona. And Prop 207 had a lot of different functions, and one of the the most important and final functions is the creation of 26 social equity licenses. And specifically what that is, is uh, the statute reserves 26 licenses, special and unique, for a social equity program that our Department of Health Services was supposed to create. We've never had one before, and uh, there's never been one that's existed. So the department here, which is the regulatory agency charged with creating and administering our program, they have to make it from nothing. And they've been working on that for the past several months, creating rules for the program. And they're about to unroll it, and indeed, the first two weeks of December, just a few days from now, uh, will kick off the application period. And it's a two-week window within December that's aimed at specifically taking in applications for these 26 social equity licenses. Now, a lot of, um, I guess I could use the word problem, that's not an unfair word to use in this circumstance, but a lot of, oh, public disagreement, debate, quarreling, um, dislike and discord over the rules and what they do contain or what they don't contain. All of that has been going on in the background and not abnormal. You know, look, there's a brand new program and it's never been done before. And and our uh, agency here, the Department of Health Services, is having to create something from basically nothing. And although, yes, it can look out around the country and maybe peek inside what other states are doing to maybe model off of them, Uh, and I think the department did a little bit of looking, it ultimately concluded it was going to go a different path with our social equity program. And we'll dive into, and and we're actually going to look at uh, 
some of the papers here in a moment. But what's happened is last week, two separate bodies of plaintiffs filed two separate lawsuits aimed at stopping our program from moving forward. They are now trying to stop the Department of Health Services from accepting applications in December. And the central grief in both of those lawsuits is that the plaintiffs believe that the department has made rules that are not in conformity with the uh, formative statutes, the, the organic statutes that create the program. Um, and before we dive in, let me lay a little background down for the non-lawyers, because otherwise this might be um, a little confusing. So first off, you need to know that Arizona is kind of unique out of most every other state in the country in the, that, in the sense that we have created now two separate bodies of marijuana state laws. Remember, everything we're talking about here is still completely federally illegal, and no, I don't have any prediction when that's going to change. Uh, all I know is that the tax revenues the federal government is pulling in right now, courtesy of uh, IRS Code Section 280E, make it irresistible to um, not change the rules, because to change the rules would mean that the tax revenues coming from this multi-billion dollar industry nationally would dramatically diminish. Nobody's tempted to reduce tax revenues, particularly now. So I don't think federal law is going to change too soon. But at the state level, certainly most every state has already modified their state-level cannabis laws to some extent, <clears throat> excuse me, or another. I think there are maybe two, maybe three states left that haven't changed their laws at all, but uh, 47 or 48 states have. So at this point, we're really down to just uh, two holdouts, and that's fine. They can be holdouts. That's their right. It's their state rules, their state laws, and their state uh, citizens free to vote as they please. But here in Arizona, we have two separate bodies of law. One is our medical program, and the other is our recreational program. And both were created by public initiative, not through our legislature. Unfortunately, Arizona's legislature has just been too um, afraid, timid, whatever you want to call it, uh, there are words I would use, but I'm being polite right now. Uh, but just unwilling, unwilling is a safe word. Our legislature has been unwilling to address the cannabis issues. And resultingly, because our public wanted it, uh, we have seen two times now Arizonans exercise their right at the ballot box through a process that we call public initiative to create two separate cannabis programs. And not every state has the right to do that. There are 14 states in the country that allow public initiatives. Arizona is one of them. So back in 2010, we created our medical program, but that was and remains, it was and remains still to this day. And it is exclusively a medical-based cannabis program. So you'll go get a patient card, you have a medical basis for your card, and you're going to a dispensary to purchase medical marijuana. But in this last general election, we had a, a vote on a new a separate initiative that creates our recreational program. And so now we have both of those riding sidecar. And again, not every state gets to do that. We're just a little unique here. But because both of these were created brand new, the Department of Health Services, the regulatory agency that runs these programs, has to look at our statutes in order to determine what it should or shouldn't be doing relative to rulemaking. So that's what's been going on for roughly the last... Oh, I don't know, nine months? When was the general election? No, it's been a year. It's been a year. It's November again. So yeah, it's been, it's been almost a full year since the department has been uh, wrestling with creating these rules. And, and I will tell you, the Department of Health Services has been modifying these social equity rules 
right up until the very end. They've just made a modification like a week ago. So it's been an exercise in frustration to be sure. But you need the rules in order to have the applications and to have the program run. So we've all been patiently waiting. And yeah, there's a body of rules that exists now that has a strong degree of unpopularity. So let's take a look at these two lawsuits. And again, these are two separate groups of plaintiffs who looked at the rules, looked at the social equity program, and were upset with how the rules were unfolded. They feel that people are either being cheated of opportunity or people who don't deserve opportunity are being accorded one. So let's dive in. We'll take a look at the first one, and then we'll take a look at the second one. And both of these, by the way, as we turn to these, are going to have... Um, two sets of documents. One is a, a complaint, which is how any civil lawsuit starts. So for you non-lawyers who aren't necessarily familiar with the world of, of lawsuits, you start a complaint generally with a, or excuse me, you start a, a lawsuit generally with a document called a complaint. So that's what we're going to be looking at. But these plaintiffs here have also separately filed at the same time a second document that's called an application for an injunction. And what they're specifically doing with that document is asking the court to issue orders directing the Department of Health Services to stand down. And again, we'll put that on the screen and walk through it. So let's start with this one first. Uh, and this is actually filed by a, a buddy of mine, uh, another lawyer named uh, James Cool, his Jimmy Cool, uh, and that is legitimately his real name, Jimmy Cool. And I've got to say, if you're going to be a lawyer, that is the name you want, and that is his actual name. So Jimmy Cool filed this on behalf of uh, a few of his clients, and here you can see the caption. There's uh, Maricopa County Superior Court here at the top. And the reason that it's filed specifically in this county is, as you'll see from the rest of the caption, it's these plaintiffs, Acre 41 Enterprises LLC and the Greater Phoenix Urban League, Inc., um, one of which is a limited liability company and the other is a nonprofit corporation. They have sued a variety of governmental entities, including the state of Arizona itself, as well as the Department of Health Services, which is a uh, political entity or, or sub-agency of the state. Uh, they named the governor and the director of health services here as well, and that's Doug Ducey and Don Harrington, respectively. And by the way, Don is relatively new to the Arizona Department of Health Services. Our, our previous director, Kara Christ, stepped down a few months ago. Um, so while you might be reading a lot of allegations, just understand none of these are like actually directed at the individuals. They're named by necessity. Uh, because there need to be these defendants here. So just even though you're seeing names, don't think like these people were taking personal action in an in a, in a, uh, intentional adverse way. Um, but as we see on the right side of the caption here, what uh, is summarized is the nature of the claims. And you don't always see this summary of claims on, on the face of the caption. Depends what jurisdiction you're in and what the local rules are. Some courts require this, some don't. Uh, in this instance, Jimmy uh, chose to list them, which is great. So we can see without even flipping into the first page that he is seeking a declaratory judgment, an uh, ultra-virus regulations, which uh, is a claim, and then mandamus. And we'll dig into that as we scroll down. So let's take a look real quick. So um, ultra-virus, let me just define that real quick for uh, the non-lawyers. So ultra-virus is, it's just Latin. It, it means beyond your ability or, or beyond what you're allowed to do. Um, an ultra-virus action is seen in a government agency, for example, as typified by this lawsuit, where the agency is doing something beyond what it's authorized to do, 
And that's what the allegation here is, that the agency is doing something beyond its authorization. But the term ultra-virus pops up in a lot of other scenarios, like in the corporate world with corporate law. You could, you could see allegations of a corporate board uh, engaging in ultra-virus acts. Uh, I've seen that many times over my uh, career doing litigation. But anyway, that's what it means. It just means you're going beyond your authority. So now let's take a look. Allegation number one, this lawsuit arises from publication of ultra-virus final regulations by the Department of Health Services on October 13, 2021, purporting to implement the Recreational Marijuana Social Equity Program approved by the voters in 2020 through passage of Proposition 207 and subsequently mandated by enactment of ARS 362854A9. That's a whole lot of fancy talk for pretty much what I just said. We've got rules, they were enacted, and uh, people aren't happy with them. Now, the allegations go on to say, in broad terms, the final regulations promulgated by ADHS fail in some ways to fully implement the mandates of Prop 207 and the statute. By the way, as I'm, for those of you who are, are listening and not uh, watching the video version of this podcast, I have the actual complaint up on the screen, and I'm just sort of narrating on top of it, and also summarizing, not necessarily verbatim reading what's on the screen. So if you have opportunity to view this rather than just listen to this episode, you may get a little more out of it by uh, pursuing this episode, which you'll find on YouTube. Now, the complaint goes through the list of who the plaintiffs are, and it describes who Acre 41 is, describes who Greater Phoenix Urban League is, and describes what their roles are. Like, for example, here at Allegation 5, uh, Plaintiff Acre 41 is a consortium of black female entrepreneurs with significant experience in the marijuana industry. Its owners and clients are directly impacted by the ultra-virus final social equity regulations promulgated by ADHS and published October 13, 2021. Just an example. Uh, we'll keep scrolling. So you'll see the other parties are listed and identified, including the governor, the Department of Health Services, and I'm just going to scroll past all that. Um, yeah, here's a reference to Don Harrington being sued in his official capacity as director of ADHS. That was my comment earlier that these people aren't being named personally. He's named because he's the agent of the government. He's not, you know, a personal bad actor here. Uh, and we see, you know, this all carries all the way through to... Um, allegations of the department. Now, it, it then talks about venue uh, being appropriate in the Maricopa County Superior Court under the procedure for special actions, which is true for two reasons. One, uh, that is indeed what the procedures call for, but two, because you're suing government agencies, you sue in the state capital, which is Phoenix, and that's Maricopa County. So this is where all of the action happens, right here in Maricopa County. Now, we get at the bottom of page three, the start of the actual factual allegations. Everything up until this point in the allegations was eh, preparatory, you know, setting the stage. Who's involved and why are we here? But now we're getting into the details. So allegation 17 onward talks about the various marijuana programs in Arizona. And we've got a discussion here of Prop 207, our recreational law, also known as Smart and Safe, because it was the Smart and Safe Act, passed in uh, November in the general election. Now, this is, at Allegation 18, what I think is the heart of the lawsuit and also the heart of the program, or problem, excuse me. Um, and here's why I'm saying that. Prop 207 is a 17-page body of statutes that collectively create the recreational program. It, it is the total sum and substance of the Smart and Safe Act, 17 pages of text 
multiple statutes, 17 pages. Of this, I am not kidding, one sentence in 17 pages creates our social equity program and doesn't even necessarily define what social equity is or what the goals of the program necessarily ought to be in their totality. Rather, as Allegation 18 criticizes, and I think this is a fair criticism, is, and I'll, I'll just read it verbatim here, among the requirements of Proposition 207 was the creation of the social equity program, which was defined as a, quote, program to promote the ownership and operation of marijuana establishments and marijuana testing facilities by individuals from communities disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of previous marijuana laws, end quote. That's a verbatim recitation of that singular sentence in Prop 207 that creates our social equity program. I'm going to read that quote again just because it's important. Um, blah, 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 creation of the social equity program, which was defined as a, quote, program to promote the ownership and operation of marijuana establishments and marijuana testing facilities by individuals from communities disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of previous marijuana laws, end quote. Now, the, the complaint here goes on to sort of tease this apart and talk about that sentence, because that's pretty much all anybody has to go on, other than perhaps maybe flipping through the publicity pamphlet that preceded the election. But the literal statute itself, this is all the department has to work with. Um, so the complaint goes on to criticize that the department has not necessarily to the plaintiff's estimation, done what the statute requires. What the complaint does next is walks through all of the rules that the department has issued or promulgated that the plaintiffs think are important or relevant to this complaint. So as we scroll down from Allegation 17, where we quote the, the statute itself, and we dip down to 18, 19, 20, 21, etc., the complaint talks about the, the codification of the statutes and the formation of the rules. So, for example, and this is an important one, we get down to um, Allegation 26 that talks about the rules setting an application period to begin December 1 and ending December 14. And that's going to be critically important, particularly for the injunction, because those are the two weeks. That is the window of time in which the department will accept applications from social equity applicants. So if the department starts to accept those applications, that means something. So these plaintiffs are trying to stop that moment from happening and also seeking to have the court review these rules and fix them. So here's where some of the uh, grievances arise from. So from 28 onward, it talks in, in quotes from these various rules. So, for example, here at Allegation 28, it's saying that applicants must attest that the applicant's principal board members and officers have not directly or indirectly, quote, entered or promised to enter any agreements for a change in ownership as defined in subsection E that will cause the applicant to no longer qualify for a marijuana establishment license under subsection B. And then subsection E, quoted in uh, Allegation 29, defines what ownership means. And by the way, without diving in necessarily to any of the allegations in this complaint, I will point out just that this one singular allegation, because this has been a thing that has vexed me as well, um, this particular regulation that I just quoted talks about there being no ability to have an agreement for the 
applicant to contractually exit the business without um, the circumstance of having the business continue to qualify for the social equity license. Well, as a pragmatic problem, if you are simply trying to have an operating agreement between multiple operators of the business, it is absolutely commonplace. In fact, uh, it would be almost unheard of to have an operating agreement that didn't address the exiting of members of these businesses. So the regulation as written is on its face to my eyes already at odds with simply the practical nature of business in general, and certainly business as it would apply to any of these license holders. Because to be able to get into a license is great, you're also entitled to a way out. And this regulation seems to almost block the exits. Um, That's problematic. So I'm already seeing why these plaintiffs are aggrieved and upset. But let's keep going. So the rest of these allegations, and I'll scroll a little slowly so you can read them, seem to be aimed at the qualification of the applicants themselves and how they're treated within the organization. And these criticisms include restrictions on on the applicant's ability to enter or exit the business, their restriction on their percentage of ownership. And then the complaint also picks on the criteria to be an applicant. So starting at allegation 32 and onward from there, uh, the Department of Health Services decided that for the social equity program, which again, social equity is left undefined in the statute, and actually, ironically, is left undefined in the regulations too, which might be another criticism. Um, But the Department of Health Services has decided that how it was going to create and define its social equity program was going to be devoid of any merit-based application. So the department made a conscious decision. It was not going to do any form of weight or comparison of applicants but rather to try to um, provide a service of just simplistic criteria. Uh, The applications would instead be based on three of four criteria that uh, theoretically any applicant uh, could hit if they match these. But here's what they are. They really don't have much to do with what some people, and certainly what these plaintiffs believed, was going to be social equity. So... Under our program, and this is defined by an administrative regulation, R918303B3, if you care to look that up, our regulation provides effectively you've got to have three of four hits. Number one, you have to have an annual household income of less than 400% of the U.S. poverty guideline, or what's called poverty level, for the last three of five years from 2016 to 2020. Um So what you would need to do is go and look up the U.S. Poverty Guidelines. They're published online. And if you earned over that time period 400% or less than that number, you can tick off box number one. But that number varies depending on the number of people in your household. And also uh, it, it varies based on what your actual income is. So, for example, it's not just paychecks. It could be if you're uh, the recipient of government benefits those benefits have a dollar value. They may not be putting literal dollars in your hand, but if you're on on the receiving end of government benefits, you have to count that towards this tally. So it's just a pure income criteria. Second criteria, 
you have to have been convicted of a criminal offense related to marijuana or marijuana paraphernalia and have had that conviction expunged. So in order to tick this box, you had to have been involved in a marijuana-based offense here in Arizona and have had it expunged by an Arizona court, which is not an easy task to do, by the way. Um, Criteria optional, number three, if you're not the convicted party, you can be the spouse, sibling, parent, or legal guardian of that individual. So basically, you're either a marijuana criminal or you are the very close familial relation of a marijuana criminal. And then the uh, fourth criteria is that you have to have lived in a disproportionately impacted zip code as defined by DHS for three of five years. So basically, the, the plaintiffs are griping that the criteria for social equity as established by the Department of Health Services is nothing more than you have to be effectively a poor criminal from what DHS assesses to be a shitty zip code. And that's it. If you, if you can tick off those three boxes, you are, according to the Arizona Department of Health Services, a qualified social equity candidate. Um, what any of that has to do with disproportionate impact of marijuana offenses the department is going to have to explain and justify in, in this case uh, or, or in the other case, and we'll review the second one in a moment. But that's it. That's, that's part of the central gripe here is that a lot of people just don't like how the department has chosen to define who qualified applicants are. Now, the complaint does go on to talk about other criteria that it's also going to criticize, such as the Applicant having to provide attestations, including that uh, none of the other board members who might be joining joining them in the venture don't have any uh, felony offenses that are excludable, meaning disqualify them from being in the venture. And then here's a big one at Allegation 38. Um, this is one worth reading. Uh, that the final rules promulgated by the Department of Health Services do not require that a marijuana establishment license issued under the Social Equity Program must continue to satisfy the 51% ownership requirement of, I'll not read the regulation number, uh, after the license has been issued by ADHS. So basically, uh, the complaint says, hey, the department is making all these rigorous criteria for someone to get a license, but once they get the license, it seems to be they can completely divest themselves, and the new holders of that license don't have to do anything related to social equity to continue to qualify that license. Um so taking this to its ultimate conclusion, if, if this is indeed uh, how the court interprets everything, you could be a social equity applicant, you could apply for the license, you could get the license, and then quickly cash out, move on, and not engage any social equity behaviors yourself, pocketing whatever money you profited from your sale, and the party who bought the license from you also would have no obligation to continue on with any social equity goals or, or uh, obligations here. So... Really, the criticism is that there is a gigantic hole in this boat and it will sink the minute it launches. Not an unfair criticism, not an unfair criticism, but also not a surprise. It's a brand new program and and people are trying to create something from nothing and try to get it perfect on the first time out. And that I don't think is a realistic expectation. I I think perfection is um, 
always the goal, but I don't think necessarily where you land, even if you're aiming for it. But always aim for it, of course. Um, now, if you had any hesitation at all about how the plaintiffs are feeling about this particular set of rules and the way DHS has set it up, uh, right here in 39, uh, I'll just read this because it's a great quote from the complaint. As a result of the failure to establish a program of oversight and the failure to require that social equity program licenses must remain owned by social equity eligible individuals, the final rules promulgated by ADHS create what are functionally 26 lottery tickets for qualifying individuals rather than a regime of continuing social equity ownership and operation. Well, there you go. I, that, that right there should be the opening paragraph of anything they're arguing, because that sums it up. That is exactly how these plaintiffs feel and are viewing the social equity program. But they go on for several more allegations here in the complaint, and I'll just scroll a little bit so you can read them on screen, um, giving some more pinpoint criticisms. Now, understand this is just at the complaint phase. Let me scroll a little more. There's a lot of ADHS do not establish <laughs> allegations here. Uh, yeah, this goes on for, for multiple pages. Um, yeah, all the way through to allegation 46. Uh, anyway, understand these are allegations. It's going to be plaintiff's burden to actually move forward in the case and prove this stuff. And uh, provided there's not a, a, a quick, swift termination of the case, which I don't anticipate, by the way. I think this case will survive uh, to an ultimate conclusion, whatever it may be. Um, but provided it does survive, the department is going to have to answer and address these point by point, and they will. So now we're done with the factual uh, allegations of the complaint. Now we're into the actual causes of action. So here at count one is a cause of action called mandamus. And this is a word that if you're, if you're not a lawyer, you probably have never run into this word before. Um, mandamus is uh, just a, another fancy Latin phrase from the world of the law. And it basically stands for um, the proposition that a court is going to order a government agency to uh, exercise a particular function of that agency that the court has determined the agency is not doing or isn't doing properly. Um, it's really a kind of a species of injunction at its heart, um, but because it's a, 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 the judicial branch issuing an order uh, either to um, the legislative branch or the executive branch, it just it comes with a different set of parameters and a different name. So it's called mandamus, um, or if you're tapping into your inner bullwinkle, it could be mandamus if you want it to be. Um, but it's mandamus, and here you go. So count one is mandamus. The plaintiffs are saying, hey, judge, please order the governor and the Department of Health Services, etc., to do what we're asking you to tell them to do, which is, of course, don't accept applications in December and do fix the rules. And you'll see this goes on for several allegations, multiple pages, just on this mandamus request. So these are going to be allegations 59 through I think 63, uh, and I'll read these verbatim. Uh, allegation 59. The final rules promulgated by the ADHS fail to ensure the operation and ownership of establishments licensed under the social equity program after the initial license allocation because one of the social equity eligible owners received the financial benefits of owning marijuana businesses. They will surely earn more than 400% of the federal poverty level and are likely to move out of disproportionately impacted zip codes. 
As a result, within a period of years, the final rules will permit a regime of social equity license ownership that no longer comports with the original eligibility criteria used to allocate the licenses. Interesting argument. So the program itself, according to what plaintiffs are arguing, is self and auto-destructive. Fascinating. I kind of dig that argument. Uh, Number 60, allegation 60. The final rules promulgated by the ADHS fail to establish criteria or procedures for the existence and administration of a program to promote the continued ownership and operation of marijuana establishments by individuals from communities communities, excuse me, disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of previous marijuana laws after the initial allocation and issuance of licenses by ADHS. Again, it's the same kind of argument that the program itself ultimately defeats its very purpose. Um, Allegation 61, quote, the final rules promulgated by the ADHS fail to establish criteria or procedures to ensure the ownership and operation of non-dispensary marijuana establishments, such as, without limitation, cultivators, kitchen operators, or retail management companies. Again, same argument, uh, but just more detailed on a fine point. Allegation 62, the final rules promulgated by ADHS fail to establish any requirement to ensure marijuana establishments licensed under the social equity program are located in zip codes, disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of previous marijuana laws. Ooh, now that one, I'm going to pause there for a moment. That's intriguing to me. Um, So the critique here that the plaintiffs are giving is to say, hey, DHS, if this is a program supposed to be aiding particularly disadvantaged communities, why aren't you requiring that these facilities that you're licensing open in those communities? Why are you allowing them to open in other communities? That's an intriguing argument. I don't know which way a court's going to rule on that, but it's an intriguing argument. Uh, and by the way, if, if you haven't gotten a flavor for this yet, all of this stuff is really just sort of like social policy and public policy stuff, um, which is why I say to my friends over the borders in various other states, including Oregon, and hint again, John Dennis, um, these are the things that are going to come up as you're making rules and just trying to get them made. I mean, you know, we're looking at a lawsuit that's a backward reflection of rules that have already been made. But these are the kind of arguments that are going to come up during the making of the rules and even afterwards. So now, as you see by our own example here in Arizona, we're theoretically done with our rules and now things are blowing up. There's multiple lawsuits, probably more coming. Um, But don't feel like this is weird or abnormal. You've got to think about this from a certain perspective. The creation of rules is always going to be contentious. There's never going to be uniform agreement amongst everybody. Uh, Look, you could take a poll in a room and ask how everybody's feeling that morning. You're going to get 58 different responses from 12 people. So too with rules. So the fact that litigation is happening at all in wake of the rules making not a surprise and not necessarily unwelcomed either. In point of fact, I, I would put the argument that this is at least one sign or symptom that democracy in America is still alive and kicking. So uh, I celebrate this. I, I realize for the people that are, are impacted by this that they may be aggrieved. Um, case in point, I have several uh, folks who are looking to apply and this may scuttle their plans. But you know, there's a greater good at, at foot, I would hope. And we'll see soon what our courts rule upon. Anyway, let me keep scrolling here. I'm kind of blathering on top of this too much. 
Um, so that's the mandamus cause of action. Let me scroll down to um, count number two. This is the ultra-virus administrative action. And again, remember I said sort of at the start of this conversation, ultra-virus just means going beyond your, your authorization or the parameters. And that's what the cause of action speaks about here in the first several allegations. It talks about the limits of an administrative agency's authority to perform its functions. And just by way of background for you folks listening at home, here's essentially how it works. I'm going to really strip this down. There's a lot of nuance, I'll omit. But basically, statutes create the administrative agencies, and statutes also task those agencies with the job of, well, administering whatever it is that the statutes tell the agency to administer. So, for example, if we're forming by statute the Department of, say, oh, cosmetology, you're also going to create some statutes that tell the Department of Cosmetology that they have authority to create regulations to govern and control uh, people who engage in the profession of cosmetology. And by the way, depending on where you live, most states do have a department that regulates cosmetology. In point of fact, I would suspect every state does. Um, you know, you don't let barbers just grab sharp blades and put them next to your neck without having at least a modicum of training. So that's what we're seeing here. You've got a statute that creates an agency and maybe a separate statute that directs the agency now to administer a program. And that agency in turn is given uh, either broad or narrow latitude to create the rules that govern the program. It just really depends on what your statute provides. Now, in scope of fighting over these things, you're going to look at more than just the statute or the rules because there could be a lot of outside influences also in play. For example, your state constitution or even federal constitution could have impacts here. Just depends on the nature of the fight and the nature of the lawsuit. Anyway, hopefully that gives you a little bit of background as to why the administrative agency stuff is coming up in this lawsuit. It's because the agency is the entity moving forward with the program, and there's criticism by these plaintiffs that the agency is just simply doing it wrong. So that's the ultra-virus cause of action here, saying, hey, DHS, you're screwing this up. Stop. Yeah, like, I'll just hear it. Here's allegation 77. Uh, quote, the final rules promulgated by the ADHS contravene the intention and express purpose of their enabling legislation by permitting qualified owners to sell or transfer their interests without restriction to individuals or entities who would not satisfy the eligibility requirements of a qualified owner after the license has been initially allocated by ADHS. And there's more allegations than that. I just wanted to give you a singular example, but that kind of sums up what I just said. Uh, and then we get down to count three, declaratory judgment. And this one also requires a little bit of explanation at the front end. So as a general concept, courts don't typically issue any kind of a judgment that is just purely advisory. Like, for example, uh, you couldn't normally file a lawsuit asking a court to just give the judge's opinion on something that isn't a real fight. Like, you know, you couldn't go to court and say, you know, judge, if I um, one day maybe agree to go buy a dog from Steve and I don't pay Steve, how do you think you might rule? Would you, would you tell me I've got to pay Steve? Uh, the court would say, no, case dismissed. That's a hypothetical, non-justiciable question. Case dismissed. Get out of here. However, however, there are circumstances where you do have a legitimate or bona fide reason to ask a judge 
for a limited or an advisory opinion. And there are statutes, both at the federal level and at the state level, that permit what are called declaratory judgments. And they're typically restricted to where you, you do have a statute that is coming up between you and somebody else or an actual contract that is coming up between you and somebody else where maybe you're not entirely sure how to interpret them or how to go about doing the thing you think you're supposed to be doing in conformity with that statute or that contract. And you're also perhaps in earnest not to do it wrong and you don't want to get in trouble. So in circumstances like that, very limited basis again, you can go and seek a declaratory judgment. So for example, you could file a declaratory judgment lawsuit that says, hey judge, uh, I have a contract with, with Steve and the contract says that I've got to paint his house uh, and I've got to paint it blue, but I'm not entirely sure if it's got to be light blue or dark blue and I don't want to just start painting and run the risk of being wrong because then I'd maybe have to paint it twice. So perhaps, Judge, you could tell us, based on the contract and maybe some of the relevant parole evidence around it, what exactly I'm supposed to do. That might be a legitimate declaratory judgment lawsuit. So in this instance, what, what the plaintiffs are saying is, hey, there's actual statutes at, at play here that we, the plaintiffs argue, mean the department has to do X. However, we see the department believes it's actually supposed to do Y not X. And we disagree. And we're going to be affected by that. So we'd like you, judge, to tell us uh, on a declaratory judgment basis, is it X or is it Y? What is the department supposed to be doing? Because again, we think it's X. They think it's Y. What do you think, judge? So that's it. That's the declaratory judgment. So it's three causes of action. Uh, again, let's just scroll up to the top here. Count one is the actual mandamus. Hey, judge, order the department to stand down and fix the rules. Count two is the ultra-virus action, which is, hey, judge, um, specifically enter a finding that the department is indeed moving beyond its authority with these rules or the way they are interpreting these rules. And count three is the declaratory judgment, which is um, a little duplicative, but really not. Um, but sort of the same concept that, hey, judge, we need an affirmative ruling from you that the department is supposed to do X, not Y, or Y, not X. So that's it. That's, that's the complaint uh, in its totality. There are some exhibits that go with it. Um, but of course, the complaint isn't going to be fast enough to get this case heard by a judge in time to stop applications being taken on December 1. Because as I'm recording this, it's November 28th three days away. And so as a result, these plaintiffs have also separately filed an application for preliminary injunction and order to show cause. So that is the second thing they filed. And what they're asking for here is a, a temporary or preliminary injunction right here in the caption where I'm swizzling the mouse around, a preliminary injunction aimed at the department to get the department to stand down. So what this effectively is, is like an emergency motion to the court saying, hey, judge, we have a, an imminent change in circumstance that unless you issue some orders here to establish a status quo, things may change and may change in an irreparable fashion. People might be permanently harmed if you, judge, don't establish some status quo orders here. 
Now, these are what injunctions are for, and particularly preliminary injunctions specifically. So a preliminary injunction is a, a, a court order that is in place during the pendency of the lawsuit. And then separate from that, one might also seek, and the plaintiffs here will seek, uh, a separate permanent injunction. So not only are you saying, hey, judge, get everybody to behave themselves and establish the status quo while we're working through these issues, but also maybe consider issuing a final order at the end of all this that makes some or all of your orders permanent, like forever. So that's all part of this. Now, the injunction itself, um, which, by the way, I do understand there's a return hearing for December 1st, so <laughs> this is going to be a sweaty week for everybody. Um, but this document, this application for injunction walks through, and I'm scrolling slowly on the screen so people at home can read, um, but it walks through the factual story of what's happening. So the first section here is the factual background, and it kind of parrots the complaint, but it's in a more narrative fashion instead of like detailed numbered allegations. It's just, it's narrative fashion. And as you read, it tells a story about the program being made in October, DHS has issued rules, and people don't like the rules, blah, blah. And then we get to a section here at the bottom of page four that starts talking about the irreparable harm that could result if the court doesn't involve itself and doesn't issue some temporary orders. And it goes on from there. And then the next section talks about why these plaintiffs in particular are entitled to this order. So this is maybe worth pausing on, and then I'll move on to the second complaint. I'm not going to go through this whole injunction. Um, by the way, you can get all these records. They're, they're available to court. You can download them. Um, I will eventually have them on my uh, Psychedelic Alex website, too, if you want to download them. I just don't have them up yet because uh, I'm still building the library on the website, but coming soon. Um, anyway, what um, any plaintiff has to do when asking for an injunction is, of course, explain why they uh, are entitled to it. So amongst other things, you've actually got to have a connection to the case or the issues or the parties significant enough to justify being there and significant enough for the court to involve itself and entertain issuing the orders you're asking, which is to say you can't be a total stranger to this and go file this lawsuit and expect to get a result. The court's going to have to see a connection that you have in order to justify any involvement. So that's what really the rest of this um, injunction application is aimed at, is explaining to the court all of the different bases under the law of injunction as to why these plaintiffs are qualified and should receive the remedies they're seeking. So that's this complaint. Now, I did mention there's a second complaint. Let me flip to that real quick, and we'll do a quick tour of it, because um, a lot of it's duplicative. So here we've got the second complaint, and this is filed um, within days of the one we just looked at, and this is... Um, same defendants, unsurprising, uh, but different plaintiffs. So you'll see this case is captioned as a verified special action complaint. Again, it's it in that sense parrots the other one we just looked at. Um, and here again, as you walk through the complaint, you'll see the same sort of content. You'll you'll have a section at the front for parties, jurisdiction, and venue, establishing who the parties are, what their involvement or connection is to the case, and who the defendants are, and again, it's the state agencies for the reason that the plaintiffs are aggrieved with how they are rolling out the program. And then there's a general factual allegation section, which, much like the other complaint, walks us through the history of the marijuana laws in Arizona, talks about Prop 207 specifically, 
Now, here at Allegation 24, there's uh, a lot of parallel to the other lawsuit. By, by the way, um, the fact that two separate lawsuits were filed and yet have so much in common, I am anticipating one or the other uh, parties to these cases will file a motion to consolidate these cases. And I suspect that all of this will be heard by the same singular judge in the same singular lawsuit. And the earlier of the two to have been filed will probably absorb the latter of the two under its case and caption number. So if you go looking for this later and maybe you can't find one of them, look for the other and you might find that they were combined. I would expect that will probably happen in the next couple of weeks if it happens at all. And I do think it will. Now, here's where this complaint takes a slightly different turn. It's got, again, a lot of the same arguments, but it's got some fresh, unique ones that are, well, I guess special to these plaintiffs. And here at Allegation 37 in particular is, uh, well, I'll just read it. The rules, as currently implemented, implicitly bar a nonprofit corporation from applying for an SEOP social equity license because it requires a POBM, principal officer or board member, to hold at least 51% ownership in the entity. And then it cites the applicable rule. Um, then this complaint goes on to point out that nonprofit corporations don't have owners, which is true. There are no shareholders of nonprofit corporations, but nonprofit corporations exist and they do a lot of work. So these plaintiffs are saying, hey, we're a nonprofit corporation and we'd like to be an applicant or support an applicant or be part of an application. But according to your rules, there's literally no place for us. We, we would not be allowed to apply or to participate. And that's only because we're a nonprofit corporation. This is an intriguing argument too. I, I very much like this and I have not heard other people in the community talk about this issue, but it's kind of sexy. I like it. And then here's one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Allegation number 40. AD, and I'll, this is, again, I'll just read a quote. ADH's, fail, eh, ADHS's failure to define and set objective standards of social equity is arbitrary and capricious. Yeah, well, um, the statute doesn't define social equity and it doesn't establish standards and the department didn't either. So this, this is an interesting allegation right here. Uh, number 40, I think, is going to be one of the pivot points for most of the arguments on these cases. Now, this second complaint goes on and talks about uh, Black Seed and, and what it's trying to achieve and who its members are and uh, it talks about being directly from the, the affected communities and being comprised of people by the affected communities and wanting to be uh, present in and giving back to these affected communities through the social equity program, but being barred strictly and only based upon the manner in which the Department of Health Services has defined who can be an applicant. So now we get down to the causes of action in this lawsuit. So the first cause of action is for special action under ARS 36-2865. And this is lifted directly out of the actual body of the marijuana statutes because there is, courtesy of the drafts people, a provision that allows any citizen to undertake a lawsuit against the department to compel the department's production and moving forward with a functioning program. And again, the criticism of this lawsuit is the department didn't do that. So the plaintiffs are saying, hey, the statute accords us specifically standing to bring this case, and thus we are. So cause of action number one is, per the statute itself, DHS, you're not doing your job, and we're seeking a court order to force you to do your job. 
Cause of action number two is a similar allegation, but under a separate authority. Instead of the marijuana statute itself, it's a special action rule that expressly allows for this. So these plaintiffs are saying, hey, whether under the statute or under the rule, we have grievances and the right to have them heard. So that's their second cause of action. And their third cause of action is declaratory judgment, much in the same fashion as with the other complaint we looked at. Uh, These plaintiffs, too, are saying, hey, judge, there are flaws with the rules of these program, and we are asking for your affirmative ruling that we are correct and the department is wrong in how we are interpreting both the statute and the rules that the department unfolded. And so you get to the, the end of the complaint here with the prayer asking for a variety of relief, including uh, that the department be ordered to revisit and amend its rules. And much like the plaintiffs in the other case, let me flip the page here real quick, these plaintiffs also have applied for a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order. So that's what's happening in Arizona right now. We've got a bunch of people who are hopeful applicants or related to hopeful applicants who have come forward with not cheap litigation, by the way. I will point out these are expensive cases. But these groups have come together and and paid lawyers to bring these cases simply in the hope of trying to, A, stop the department from accepting applications in December, and B, getting the department to change those applications, or excuse me, change the rules and resultingly those applications. So it's more than just the applications, but the actual rules, including who qualifies and what those qualifications look like. Now, another thing that you all need to appreciate is none of the plaintiffs in either of these cases is asking, nor would receive licenses as a result of these cases. They won't receive anything, maybe if they're lucky, an award of attorney's fees against the Department of Health Services. So, you know, maybe they get reimbursed for the effort. But at the end of this case, even if all the plaintiffs absolutely win everything and knock this thing out of the ballpark, they're not getting licenses. All they're going to get, if they're successful, is a series of court orders telling the department, get back to work and go back to the drawing board and make better rules. So in a weird way, and I know this sounds crazy, the end, end, end of this could be that some or all of these plaintiffs may end up in a future scheme of rules wherein they are legitimately disqualified from participating. Now, I don't think that's a probable outcome here, to be fair to my own comment, but that is a risk that they are nonetheless taking. So when you look upon these plaintiffs and, and, and ask and wonder what are they up to and what is the goal, uh, you've got to remember they're being incredibly altruistic. They are reaching into their own pockets and spending their own money for something that may not directly profit them personally ever, ever. But they're still doing this to try to make this program better for what they assert is better for everybody. Ultimately, a court's going to decide that, and you know, really, ultimately, it's going to be an appellate court. Uh, whatever happens at the trial court level is terribly important, but I have to imagine whichever side maybe doesn't win this, there's a high probability of some level of appeal. So this could go to the Arizona Court of Appeals, or it could reach as high as the Arizona State Supreme Court. Not sure which. My gut says this is probably headed to the State Supreme Court, ultimately. And this is a first and essential step. Uh, So that's it. That's what's going on. We have uh, less than a week to go before the department starts to take social equity applications on a program that by the very statute is barely defined. 
And we have two lawsuits pending where both of those camps are going to try to stop the department from taking applications during December. And both of those camps are trying to get the rules changed. I don't know how it's going to end, but my gut says at a minimum, the court's probably going to order that the applications not be taken in December. Understand, until the court rules, it's anybody's guess. And that's all I'm doing right now is guessing. But when you look at the risk of moving forward versus the risk of not moving forward, it's kind of a no-brainer that the court would rule to stay the program from accepting applications. Why? Because if the program does start to accept applications in December, it's probably going to be taking in and processing hundreds to thousands of applications, each one of which comes with a non-refundable $4,000 application fee. Now imagine if the court gets to the end of all of this and decides, yeah, you know what, the rules are messed up, we need to change them. What's easier, not taking applications and just letting everybody sit tight for a few months or having to unwind thousands of applications? Obviously, issuing an order saying, everybody sit tight and do nothing until we get this sorted out is the better move. If I were the sitting judge, that's how I would take it. Uh, but I'm not the sitting judge. I, I know the sitting judge, and I'm happy that this case got assigned to that judge. Uh, and I think that's how he'll rule. But until he does, it's anybody's guess. So advice to the wary is keep your eyes on this. And um, if you're looking to apply, stay the course until you know otherwise, because to do anything else would be dangerous. You might blow your application period and therefore never, never even get a shot. Um, but again, watch the court because it's entirely possible an injunction issues this week. And if it does, there will be no applications. Uh, and final word, if you're in other states that are creating different types of programs, you might want to look and study what's going on here because it is a glimpse of your own future. It's nothing terrible. Look, this is a normal, natural part of the evolution of a new program and the evolution of a new body of rules and regulations. Uh, of course, there are going to be people upset. If people were happy, well, it wouldn't be regulations and administrative law, would it? Um, so anyway, I hope that helps you and I hope you uh, pick up some good tips. And if you want to know more, write in. I'm happy to address viewer questions. Anyway, um, I'll report back as more happens. So take care. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community.